All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, we'll be breaking down the second episode of the second season, second and final season of Your Honor on Showtime, simply called Part 11. I'm sorry, Part 12, second episode of second season, <laughs> Part 12. <laughs> and if you're following our podcast, we're also covering The Last of Us, this zombie outbreak HBO series from the creators of Chernobyl. And you probably don't follow this thing, Sona, but this was the third largest premiere, only Boardwalk Empire and House of the Dragon are the only two bigger HBO premieres ever for a series. So very big premiere last week for that show. And we're covering that simultaneously here. And they're both 10 episode series. So they'll be rounding, they'll be running through the middle of March. And then we will be covering Yellow Jackets, which I'm looking forward to very much. Mm -hmm. And soon thereafter, we'll be covering Succession as well. Sona, I might need to recruit you for two podcasts simultaneously. Simultaneously, <laughs> We've done it before, right? We have. We have I think yeah. Succession, right? Succession and Dexter at the same time. And also today, I have seen more of Breaking Bad. I saw part of season two up until Saul Goodman shows up. I thought it was an apropos place to cut it off. Fantastic. I'll give you a recap of that and uh, get some feedback from you and some observations, more observations I've made. Anyone who's rewatching that, series along with us, part one of that, season one, I watched just two weeks ago when we previewed this series, the new Brian Cranston series, Your Honor. So check that out if you're curious. I will try not to talk too much ahead of where I am in the watching because I just suddenly started thinking maybe, maybe people out there are watching along, like for the first <laughs> time, possibly. I don't know. <laughs> I will probably hint at things that happen in the future, but I probably won't like spoil things that are immediately going to happen within the season, for example. I'll try to Try to be spoiler-free, if that makes sense, even though this show is like 10 years old. We'll see how that goes. I did enjoy this watch more than I think I appreciated it originally as well. So I'll get into that later in this episode. I'll put some timestamps in the show notes in case you are listening to Breaking Bad Rewatch, but not Your Honor. For any of you that meet that criteria, check the show notes. All right, with that out of the way, Sona, first of all, I wanted to mention to you that tomorrow night, there's a new show coming on Fox, and I think I'm going to review just the first episode. I don't know if I'm going to go week to week with it, but I like anthologies, and I like shows that get into the criminal justice system somewhat, and this show is called Accused, and it's on Fox, and it's an anthology where these very famous guest stars basically follow one case, the accused person, from the beginning to the end, from the crime through to court proceedings in a one hour time frame, or I guess it's 45 minutes because it's network television, which probably seems maybe rushed, but I am curious to sample this. And this so, is fiction. Fictional. Yes. Not, okay. I mean, possibly based loosely on actual cases, but I think if so, not by name, it's one of those ripped from the headlines, mm -hmm, law and mm -hmm. order type situations. I would assume, I would assume, but maybe something you would want to sample as well. I definitely am going to give my feedback on it next week. I might hate it, <laughs> but I am very curious. I like, like I said, I like <laughs> anthologies and I like this premise of following a case from beginning to end. And the last thing I wanted to mention is speaking of, we were just talking a couple of weeks ago in our year end recap of how Abbott Elementary has been such a breakout. And I was kind of surprised, like, wow, I guess old school, you know, turn the TV on and watch commercials, et cetera. I guess that still works, even though we're so used to this kind of elevated mm -hmm. drama with anti-heroes. And that's pretty much what we cover here on the podcast. But I wanted to mention, have you sampled this? I did not. But two things that might be up that alley. Netflix now has that 90s show, which has premiered this week. Yes, I just saw an ad for that. 
I did not watch that 70s show, but I am curious to know. I did watch that 70s right. show and I was a big fan of it. I really loved it. Surprising myself, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I was curious. So and they brought back the original cast. So I was curious to get a feedback if you had noticed that. But even more so than that, I don't know if you heard this story, but they rebooted Night Court. I brought, am aware of that. Yes. And they brought John Larroquette back. And I was a big fan of Night Court back in the day. It was like, you know, yeah. whatever it was in between Cheers and whatever right. else I was watching. Just something right. I grew up watching. Total comfort TV. I thought Harry Anderson was very funny. He died just a couple yes. years ago. But the shocking thing is that this thing premiered. They had two episodes back to back. And the first episode got 10 million viewers. <laughs> and uh, I think the second episode that same night got like seven or eight million, which is pretty strong retention. And of course, people mm -hmm. do not watch things live anymore. They watch things on Hulu or streaming, uh, or I should say like off their DVRs. <laughs> so this number was absolutely shocking. So just to the point, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I'm talking about like, do people still want traditional <laughs> network comedies? And I'm like, apparently they desperately want them. We have been starving for that. I guess, I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. People were like, finally, something besides The Bachelor or Bachelorette is on. <laughs> or, or like antihero crime dramas, I guess. Yeah. Right? Or zombie shows. <laughs> it's so tough. many zombies. My God, the number of zombie shows out there. I would say, you know, I've only seen one episode of The Last of Us, but it is definitely elevated in regards to that. I was not a fan of, for example, The Walking Dead, at least not after season one. And uh, this so far seems to be, you know, a prestige HBO. What do you expect from HBO? Uh, I do hope that that continues. A prestige zombie show. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, high end zombies. <laughs> yes. Very classy. All right. Let's finally get into the breakdown of this episode of Your Honor. We start things out. Michael is out of prison. Mm -hmm. Michael played by Brian Cranston. He takes a bus to his mother-in-law's neighborhood. That's Elizabeth played by Margot Martindale. She's surprised to see him at the door. She lets him in, but she's not exactly happy that he's there. He's uncomfortable being in this room that has pictures of his son. He actually tucks them away and just other reminders of his son as well. And on top of that, he just can't deal with all the space in the room. He actually mm -hmm. eyes, he eyeballs this pantry immediately, uh, you know, smaller than yes. his cell, but apparently he's eyeing that for sleeping purposes later on. I feel like I've seen that before. I can't put my finger on where somebody sleeping in a closet because they didn't know what to do with all the space, but I can't remember what context it was in or where I saw it. I think there was something with Homeland, maybe when he came back. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I also remember from uh, Castaway with uh, Tom Hanks that he's uh, when he stays in that hotel the first time, he basically has to like tuck himself under. Mm -hmm. He has a routine where he goes to the cemetery daily to see, unfortunately, now his wife and son's graves. And he shows up at Town Hall to speak to Charlie, who's now the mayor, played by Isaiah Whitlock Jr. He's wearing that one set of clothes, apparently, he has <laughs> from prison. Mm -hmm. He's wearing the same clothes until maybe the middle of the episode. He starts expands his wardrobe once he starts getting a, an actual new job. And he's probably there to give Charlie a heads up that he might be in the crosshairs of an investigation to let Charlie in on it. Yes, very loyal. But apparently he's been banned from the building. But one of the security guards does recognize him and presumably informs Charlie that he was there. As he leaves the courthouse or at the town hall, I guess, he runs into Olivia, played by Rosie Perez, and she's outside waiting. She knew he was heading here. And she warns him, do not mess with her. If you're messing up her plans, Charlie and him are both headed to prison. Mm -hmm. It's funny seeing Breaking Bad in parallel to this because, you know, the characters are very different in this regard. He says that he's not able to do this. He cannot pull this off. He does not have the skill set to lie to everybody and be some kind of spy. And this is the first question I have for you, Sona. Her response to that is, I know. 
I know. Right. And then she hands him his uniform for the job that we're going to get into in just a minute. But before we get to that, what do you think she meant with that? I know. I was actually trying to explain to my husband last night because he was watching the basketball game while I watched this on my phone (laughs) Um, (laughs) because he had watched the first season with me, what was happening in season two. All I could say is like, I guess she has some plan. Yeah, exactly. We just don't understand yet where all of this makes sense. Yes, right now it doesn't really make sense. (laughs) (laughs) It definitely is the case. She's done a lot of planning for this. I just found it very interesting saying that she knows that he does not have the skill set to pull this off. As if, I mean, this is a terrible thing to say, but as if he's bait, she assumes that he's going to blow it somehow. And that is part of her plan. See, I assumed that her plan somehow takes this into account. Exactly. Exactly. And doesn't that's what... ask him to do something that is beyond his skill set. Okay. That's how I read it. I'm almost there with you. When I said that he, she's going to blow it and that's part of her plan, it's kind of what you're saying. I think that he is not going to have the guile to pull this off. It will become apparent what he's doing. And she has factored that into her plan, which is kind of fascinating, actually, if that's the case. Yes. I have no idea what her plan could possibly be. But it, it, it apparently is very well thought out. Apparently. <laughs> because she gives him that clothing. Mm-hmm. She gives him that clothes, I should say, and mentions that it's for his new job. Turns out she's heading to a butcher shop and this butcher had appeared before him and that Michael had reduced this guy's sentence saying that, you know, good people don't deserve in, to be in jail. He trusted that this guy was not a dealer or anything. He was just a user and he gave him a second chance. So maybe that's another theme here too, that even though Michael's done some pretty terrible things last season, this good deed he had, like and actually being a compassionate person, might pay off here. I hope that that seems to be the case. I thought it was definitely a meaningful callback to the idea they established in season one that he was a judge that really did look at the specific facts of what had happened and wasn't right. trying to needlessly lock people up. I think they're reestablishing that and the idea that everything he did was done out of love for his son, all of those crazy yep. things. Whereas in contrast to Breaking Bad, which I guess we'll talk about later, yeah. at some point it becomes apparent that there is a lot of ego driving the actions. Yes. Now I'm trying mm-hmm. to be conscious of spoilers because of what you <laughs> said. Here, it really was acts of desperation mm-hmm. to save his son. And then something that I thought about, and I don't know if they were meaningfully making us think about it, but during this episode, I just kept thinking, how do you go on after losing losing your right. wife and your mm-hmm. son yep. in such a short amount of time? I can't imagine how devastating that is. I think a bunch of things you just said there are really important. First of all, especially be watching this in parallel with Breaking Bad. I think that's exactly the point that's being made there. As a matter of fact, even my interpretation when we covered season one of the show, I had suspected that maybe Cranston was a murderer at the beginning of that series. <laughs> yes. So I feel like they are, like you said, showing that he wasn't just virtue signaling when he uh, was being compassionate to these people who were appearing before him in that first season. He legitimately had some compassion. It's building some compassion for the character or more compassion considering all the terrible things he did last season. And like you mentioned, it also speaks to the fact that he's very different than the Walter White character. First of all, when he says to Rosie Perez, to the Olivia character, I don't have the skill set to do this, which of course is different than what Walt would have said. Walt would have been like, I can do anything. He is (laughs) the one uh, who knocks. He's the one who knocks. That's right. (laughs) 
so much was just driven by desperation. Yes, exactly. It wasn't right. like a cold calculating plan exactly. that he had. Mm-hmm. It was just trying to eke out some form of survival for him and his son. In a way, this reinforces some things that were vague last season about what his true motivations were. I thought this was a better episode than this show has kind of given us in the past. Mm-hmm, I agree. More character development, more of a slow build. Side note to the listeners, there's actually a new showrunner, one of the writers from season one, but they did change the showrunner here. And I do wonder if they've changed the tone of the show here as well, which I appreciate so far. It still remains to be seen, but I feel like so far, I feel like this is going to be more of a slow burn, whereas the first season Mm -hmm. seemed to be looking to jack up the tension every time they could. Exactly. And maybe they did it successfully for the most part. I completely agree. I completely agree. But I do uh, enjoy that they've changed the tone here and and Mm -hmm. the tempo of the show because it's the last season, right? Like you don't, I personally don't want it to be a cliffhanger every single week when it's just the end of the line, right? Like there should be some meat on these bones before we wrap everything up. Speaking of meat on the bones, (laughs) he uh, (laughs) gets a job delivering the meat here for this uh, butcher shop. And of course, not coincidentally, part of his delivery route, probably within a couple of days of him starting the job, turns out being that very hotel that the Baxters own, where his son I agree, not a coincidence at all. Part of Rosie Perez's grand plan. Olivia, let's call her by. Mm -hmm. She's always Rosie Perez. (laughs) (laughs) In my heart, she's always Rosie Perez. (laughs) Exactly, always. (laughs) Charlie eventually does show up on that first day. He's at the butcher shop after getting word, I assume, from that security guard. And Charlie says, you shouldn't have gone to jail. I tried to see you. But of course, Michael's a little cagey here in his response because he knows that he did indeed throw Charlie under the bus in that Mm -hmm. confession immediately after the events of season one. And he does try to give a little bit of a warning to Charlie, but of course he doesn't want to be too overt about it because he assumes Olivia is listening to everything. Honestly, I felt like he said too much considering the warning she Mm -hmm. gave. Exactly. Charlie does mention that no secrets ever remain Buried in New Orleans, the water finds everything. I really thought that was a beautiful way to put it. And yeah. have you, you've been to New Orleans, yes? No, I have not I've, actually. Oh, okay. No. It, I felt like it's someplace that some of your work travels would have taken you for some reason. If you go, one thing that is almost considered like a tourist attraction, there's a cemetery in the French Quarter that has mm-hmm. a lot of very clever uh markers like um i told you i was sick or something like that right (laughs) yeah but what he's saying is true that they can't bury underground because of that constant erosion and you see this when michael visits the cemetery too that everything is above ground and it lends a very creepy feeling to know i mean obviously anytime you're at a cemetery you're walking amongst the dead but here with them above ground it just it adds a different level to that spooky kind of, it was a really nice metaphor or simile. I'm not sure, (laughs) (laughs) but I appreciated it. Yeah. I did like that piece of dialogue as well. As I mentioned earlier, it's a few days later and Michael pulls up in front of the hotel and realizes this is not a mistake. Olivia knew had had this as part of her plan. Michael runs into Fia and he's uncomfortable being there. And uh, she also mentions that her friends think that's kind of morbid that she's living there now. As her mom makes the point, you know, (laughs) what do you think you're proving here? (laughs) 
exactly the house by but moving into the family hotel it's very independent of you right (laughs) but also the the decision to live there right where he had died if this is really the thing that's traumatized her so much they do embrace here and michael once again is very uncomfortable jimmy this is kind of funny actually jimmy's like peeking behind a bush or something Mm -hmm, looking at them mm -hmm. obviously he's very curious about their interactions and fia wants to tell him about the baby but he rushes out he just gets overwhelmed by his feels (laughs) understandably she wanted him to meet the most silent baby in the world. <laughs> yes, amazing. Yeah, we, I got to get into that at the end of this episode. Yes, logistically, I don't <laughs> yes. understand how she's pulling this off. <laughs> exactly. Totally agree. Totally agree. And then the next day, he uh, goes to the cemetery again. On the way home, he runs into Detective Costello, played by Amy Landecker. And she tells him, Michael, I know you did this for the right reasons. I understand why you did it, but you didn't trust me. You should have brought me in earlier. And now there's no water under the bridge. Now <laughs> she is saying you're under protection by Olivia, but as soon as she's gone, I'm coming for you. Yet another threat to him. I understand where she's coming from yes. on paper. Right. But again, this was a place that I returned to in my mind as this scene was happening of this guy has lost his wife and his son. Do you <laughs> right. not think he's suffering enough? Right. And he was in jail for a while. Yes, there is what is black and white, right and wrong. But also, this seems a little vindictive to me. It does. But I mean, at the same time, he endangered people's lives, covered up a murder, possibly. And she may be aware of a lot of this. Water under the bridge. (laughs) Water (laughs) under the bridge. She seems to be, in season one, she seems to be very much a rule follower. So I think that 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 does fit her character, though. I agree. I agree. Although, I mean, this is just one more thing that he does not need to think about. When he gets inside the house, he actually contemplates killing himself once again. And we see slits on his wrists. So this is tried, you know, just driving home the point that multiple times already we've seen different suicide attempts on his part. But instead he takes the dog for a walk. With his noose. <laughs> With the noose leash. Yeah. Noose slash leash. He's like, hmm, do I hang myself or do I walk the dog? <laughs> he did change his clothes now. So he's putting that delivery money to good use. <laughs> but how about a haircut? Can we think about yes. a haircut and a shave? <laughs> yes. Yes. The whole uh, Bob Ross thing is not really working for him. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I don't know what it's like as a woman, but it just feels like you would feel very disheveled when that was not your normal look prior to being in jail. But <laughs> I, I would. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I just got my hair cut and I let it go a little long and even it starts bothering me. I can only imagine when it's shaggy, yeah. but I mean, he's been growing for a year, so he's probably been acclimating to it. Elizabeth mentions to him uh, as he's heading out to his daily ritual, what is, where is he heading out to? He mentions, of course, he's going to the cemetery. And she mentions she has these flowers that bloom once a year and that when they bloom, whatever day that is, she's going to go visit them in the cemetery. Does this mean that she's only got to the gravesite once <laughs> or zero times, depending on when this thing actually blooms? I think it may, but I don't see anything wrong with that. I agree with that too. I just find it funny that she says, this is my calendar for visiting them. And it's like, so you've been there zero times? Like what exactly has been the case? Because you know? her point, right, was they're not there. So true, true. what are you doing? <laughs> By the way, we have one of these flowers in Portugal. And when we went to visit a couple of years ago, the flower bloomed when we were there. We didn't even see it bloom, but we could mm-hmm. smell it. Like, what's that smell? What's that smell? And then all of a sudden we saw this um, giant flower blossom. Wow, what a coincidence. It blossoms once a year and it just happened to blossom when we were there. So we were only there for a few days. So That's lovely. You know, they have that other one. It's at the New York Botanical Gardens, but it's called the corpse flower because it smells mm. awful when it blooms. Mm-hmm. So I'm happy to hear this was a more fragrant. 
<laughs> it's very pungent, but it's it's a it's a very aromatic, but not in the bed, <laughs> not like a corpse, yeah. <laughs> not like <laughs> attracting buzzards. Yes. Yeah, her perspective is they're not there. Other people could take comfort in right visiting yeah. their final resting place. Not to, I don't think either one of them is right or wrong. I'm just saying that what she's doing is consistent with her belief. Yeah, I mean, as a matter of fact, and we'll get into this when we go through the rest of the uh, breakdown of these other character arcs within this episode. But I think that's the theme. I, and I like when episodes are written thematically. The theme of this episode is how these different people are dealing with their losses, right? That each one of these people has a different strategy. Mm -hmm. And to your point, I don't think they're saying this is the right way to do it. You're doing right. it wrong. I agree. <laughs> Although I think that Hope Davis's character, uh, Gina, is doing it the wrong way. <laughs> but everybody yeah. else, I think, just has their own way of doing it. No judgment. Well, we haven't talked about the grief counseling circle, right? And Oh, We'll get to it. <laughs> we'll get to it. <laughs> so in parallel with this story, we see that Big Mo wants to buy a jazz bar where her girlfriend sings in the French yes. Quarter. And she gets interrupted by a text message from her son, Lil Mo, who uh, mentions that they're having too many o ODs in the neighborhood. Apparently someone cut the heroin with fentanyl. And she says, get all the product off the street and try to get reimbursed by this guy, Tony, apparently, I guess was their distributor or their dealer, I should say. And but ripped the from the headlines, right? That yes, seems mm -hmm, to be yeah. something that does happen. I remember recently New there York, was an yeah. article. Yeah, I, I don't remember if it was in the New York Times or somewhere else. But there was this drug delivery service, like very mm -hmm, exactly. high end, that all these attorneys <laughs> were using mm -hmm. and finance guys. And there was a run of people that yep. died because the drugs were, I mean, not good, but like no drugs are good. But you know what I'm saying. They were cut yes. with something that caused people to overdose. Yeah, it was fentanyl. And I, re I thought of the exact same article, by the way, Sona, not Jinx, but I was thinking the exact same thing. And I did find that to be very interesting. In this neighborhood, I would assume, and this is totally a, an assumption I'm making, that most of the people who are ODing are probably people in the neighborhood, just because territory. Oh, I agree. Probably, no, I agree. Right? Yes. Outside the scope of the show, but still interesting, was reading that article. Oftentimes, there's an expectation of what a drug addict looks like, or drug user, I should say, not necessarily an addict, because it was a high-end delivery service. The people who were dying were like millionaires, property owners, yes. authors, doctors, exactly. you know, it was pretty interesting to see that, you know, just because they hide it better doesn't mean that addiction doesn't go in every layer of uh, society. And the line between the effects of prescription drugs and street drugs is, is so right. thin at this point. I think people just switch back and forth between whether you can get a prescription or not for what it is you're looking for. Exactly. But that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not, not, at least not at this moment, something that shows me to deal with. So the problem there, we're getting, you know, they want to get reimbursed for this, but she does not have product on the streets. So she needs to get a new connection. Little Mo goes to visit Eugene, who's pouring coffee, living out at his uh, aunt's house, Sheila. Yeah, it seems to be Texas, right? I think so. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> there was a uh, highway sign that had Houston oh, and some yes, other. Yes. Good point. Yes. Uh, very good. Point. Some t cities I thought I recognized as being in Texas. And I was wondering if Eugene has learned to do that pretty leaf that they do on the lattes. <laughs> Maybe. I, I want to learn how to do that. <laughs> That's got to be 101 training. So I'm, he probably has gotten to that level. And while he's there, he also meets up with his cousin who does introduce him to a local heroin connection. Right. This guy's giving his batting practice, no less, <laughs> while he's doing this deal in front of his uh, nephew. Little Mo wants to buy two kilos of heroin and try it out and see how things go. And the guy says, nope, he moves big freight. 
he wants 20 kilos. And it was a very funny line of dialogue here where little Mo says, I got to beg this drug dealer to sell me drugs. Yes, that was funny. <laughs> but his cousin actually is in favor of this larger deal because he says, look, get the money, which he doesn't have currently, and make this deal because I do not want to be your middleman. Yes, a very reluctant middleman. Yes. Yeah. He's like, I'll do this once. I don't want to do this every week. <laughs> yeah. And he did the math too of 20 versus <laughs> right. two. I don't want to do this 10 more times. <laughs> exactly. One and done. But like I mentioned, he does not have enough money for this. So I'm sure he has to go back to his mom to figure out whether this deal is going to be doable or not. Eugene, meanwhile, is uh, gets in trouble in school. For... This is exactly <laughs> what I was going to get to. Very talented artist, very poor judgment. Exactly. He's replaying season one in his mind and animating it. on <laughs> Literally like, memorializing crimes in vivid yes. detail. <laughs> do not do this at school, please. Like find oh another outlet. It does lead to a nice scene though, where yes. Sheila says to him, I'm not your mom, but if you can pretend to be Justin, yes, I could be Justin's mom. Meanwhile, Big Mo wants to buy that jazz club and she gets the brush off from the owner. So she goes to Charlie and says, hey, can you pull some strings and get this guy to sell me the club? And Charlie says, I think I can do something for you. But as long as this is the last time you ask me for a favor. Meanwhile, the Baxters, Gina attends that grief counseling session, as, as, you, uh -huh. as you mentioned earlier. And she's just terrible. She's just terrible. Your mom, you grow up. Your kid was an addict. My pain uh -huh. is better than your pain. <laughs> yeah, this is just uh -huh. really irritating. <laughs> This is not the place from her. Maybe some one-on-one -on -one <laughs> yeah. counseling would Maybe. be more beneficial. Agreed. I mean, not only that, it's detrimental to everybody else at that group. I think. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Jimmy just drinks and uh, happens to run into Fia. Like I mentioned, she's actually living at the hotel. And we also see that Gina and Jimmy are barely interacting. Yes. He's uncomfortable even coming into his room to shower. And the coldness mostly seems to be coming from Jimmy. I guess he, deep down inside, blames some of what happened on Gina's hot-headedness. Yeah, I think he's realizing I may be a mob boss, but she's a psychopath. <laughs> right. Oh, I don't know if I brought this up last week, but I hadn't realized, I don't know if you caught that as well, that apparently it is Gina's family that's in the mob. You know, he obviously is the mob boss now, but it's via I did her not. relationship. Yeah. Did you catch that? It went No. Sophia, before they on that car ride where Big Mo calls him, she says, Mom and Carlo are the same, but dad, you're like me. And then in that, there's an inference there that the mom inherited the mob connection, basically. So I guess he obviously is fully aware of what's happening, but he's still trying to play, which I thought was interesting in that first episode. And I don't think I touched on it. He's still trying to play the nice guy to her that, oh, that's not really me. But of course we know that push come to shove. He's just as yeah. vicious. And if anything, even more yeah. cold about things versus Gina. Uh, his vengeance is always served cold. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, that coldness, like I mentioned, is mostly coming from Jimmy's side. At this moment, there is a tense breakfast conversation where Jimmy's trying to ask Carlo to get Fiat to move back into the house. And no one's seeing this thing the same way. Well, don't forget, they don't know that she's trying to hide the existence of a baby. <laughs> and they have to know about the baby. I don't think they know about the baby. No, they have to know about the baby. And hey, my sisters had the same impression last week. I think that's really interesting. I think that's why she disappeared the way she did is so they don't know about the baby. I mean, oh, there's no way. Well, there's no but... way Carlo's walking in that house. There's that room. There's no way that. That's why I'm saying to you, it's the most silent baby that ever existed. But I'm pretty sure Gina is in the room with her. She's like putting baby clothes away or diapers away or something. So I think they know about the baby. 
I don't think that's why she's she's there. I mean, if you if you really were trying to do those other raps, don't live. <laughs> I guess I agree ma- <laughs> with you. None of it makes any sense to me. But there is also, in my mind, no proof that they know about the baby. <laughs> there, there's no explicit proof. I do agree, but I've assumed it along the way. Mm-mm. I guess that, I guess that's more ambiguous than I actually expected it. But it's insane to me that anybody could hide the existence of a baby. I think you could hide a pregnancy. I don't think you could hide the existence of the baby. So that's where I'm getting hung up. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, she had to have gone to a hospital to give birth to the baby. There's no way Gina would not be keeping an eye on her that whole entire time, even if she's living in the hotel. I I just don't believe it. Logistically, it just doesn't make sense. I would say at this moment, if if that turns out to be the case. It makes no sense. I agree. Logistically. If that turns out to be the case, the the whole show would be knocked down a peg for me. (laughs) Because even the hotel staff would not understand this. And somebody would just mention, oh, your grandson. I agree with you. It makes no sense. So in that way, I'm with you. But- who doesn't say when they're begging for why can't Fia come back to the house? You would say because the baby, we can help. I mean, I want to know my grandson. It's also weird that nobody has literally acknowledged this baby. All true. But at the same time, I can't imagine. Maybe I don't want to digress further on this because I guess we can't know until it's explicitly said in the show. She would be panicked when her mom walked in into the hotel room because the baby could start crying at any time. And I she agree. does not and seem to I, be my head, acting I that way. Maybe right? this baby is in daycare. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and once again, she's smuggling the baby out and no one notices. Anyway, I, 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 I don't. I, I, <laughs> well, she doesn't let the maid in there. We know that. That's true, too. That's also a good point. I just thought of that as you were saying this, that that, that does fit into your theory. But I, I can't I can't imagine it being the case. I hope not anyway. I agree with you. There are some big logical problems, if that's the case. But <laughs> the dialogue indicates to me that no one yes. knows about this baby. Yes, no one has explicitly said it in dialogue. You are absolutely correct. So that, I guess, is more ambiguous than I expected. And I, I hope that's not the case because that would be a pretty weird thing to try to cover up at this point. And I don't think it really serves any dramatic purpose. But I get, but you are correct that they have not explicitly mentioned the baby. Like, like you said, even amongst themselves saying, I want to have a relationship with my grandchild. So you might be, you might be right. We all know that when somebody has a baby, especially the first grandchild, that's all anybody can talk about ever. Yeah, right. So I don't know. It remains to be seen, but I have questions. <laughs> yes, yes. Now I have questions too. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and during that breakfast, uh, going back to that a moment in the show, Frankie walks in uh, their head henchman and informs them that Michael is out of prison. I also like to that this actor who plays Carlo, who played this one-dimensional vengeance machine mm-hmm. in season one, mm-hmm really gets to show, once again, speaking to the quality of the writing in this season so far, gets to play a much more interesting version of this character. He seems to be a good brother yeah, to his sister, despite all this tough guy posturing he does. But there's also that moment where he's with his dad and his dad, he says to his dad um, that she just needs some space. You just got to give her some time. And the dad just like doesn't want to hear anything about it. And he kind of gives a smirk to his dad and goes, hey, what do you mean? You lost everything. I'm still here. And his dad just kind of says, you're a good brother. But there's this look on his face. He knows that his dad favors Sophia. So it's an expected answer, but he is a little hurt by this. And I thought that he did a really good job here, actually. But, and I just want to pay compliments to this actor because I feel like he didn't get a chance to play anything mm-hmm. then other than this one note last season. So I thought he did a good job. I also, this is not really an acting thing, but I'm finding the Fia character much more likable this season yes. than mm-hmm. I did last season where it's kind of just like, it doesn't even make any sense to me why these two are so into each other. <laughs> <You> <laughs> right. Know? 
here, I am growing more fond of her. And this is something that was lacking in season one for me, although I think it did really work effectively as a thriller machine. I, I binged the whole show pretty quickly because mm-hmm. I caught up on it very late. I binged it all over the course of two or three days. There wasn't a time for these type of reflective episodes. And I think the show really needed it, but I do appreciate they are fleshing all these characters out. Like the Adam character really annoyed me in season one. And I felt like he was just this hysterical kid, even though the actor was so much older, which really rubbed me the wrong way. But everybody was so just a stereotype, so as to move the plot forward. And I feel Mm -hmm. like everybody gets to be a little deeper just Mm -hmm. by having one episode to just kind of take a breath. Okay. So now we get to the end of the episode. Charlie does pull through and helps Big Mo purchase that club or try to anyway, apparently from the scenes next week, that's not, the deal's not done yet. And he basically says, hmm, you know, the historic society might have some questions about these alterations you made to the club. Hey, that could hold up your purchase to a different buyer by who knows, maybe years, maybe years for that. Big Mo does tell a story about her dad who used to perform at that club and how he could perform there, performed there for 20 years, Mm -hmm. actually. But when someone, one of the bartenders made him a drink one day, the owner Mm -hmm. slapped that drink right out of his hand. So good enough to perform there, not good enough to drink. Mm -hmm. She has a chip on her shoulder about that. So maybe that's the reason she's buying that. Or is it because as she walks out the door, we realize this club is right across the street from the Baxter's Hotel. So is this all some scheme on her part to be closer to the Baxter's for some reason? There's definitely some symbolism in, in that, no? I love a grudge. So (laughs) I support her doing this solely to vindicate her father. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. I do don't think that's a coincidence that she's stationed right across the street from the Baxters, no? Um, You know, I hadn't really given it too much thought. Certainly, it will make for some interesting plot developments, I'm sure. Whether it's actually intentional that she's positioning herself in that way, maybe like one of those things that's a win-win. Maybe it was always on her list of things to do. And then when she realized, she thought, well, now's the time. So here's my question to you. Did she want to buy this club because she's been hanging out there since her girlfriend sings there? Or has she always been hanging out at this club, always thinking one day I'm going to own this place? And that's how she met her girlfriend. What do you think? If you have to pick one of those. I'm sorry, I'm silent because I'm I'm really thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> because I love a grudge. I feel like she's always wanted to do this. I think that's the only rational theory is that she has been there yeah. fantasizing of owning this place. And then she met her girlfriend there. Yeah. Because it doesn't, the other thing would be just way too many coincidences. Like she's, her girlfriend happens to sing there and it's the place her dad used to sing. You know, like it's like too much. But the first season did love coincidences. So <laughs> true, true. So maybe. Gina does go and visit Fia in her room. Fia seems very relaxed. I'm just going to call it out. If she's afraid of her mom finding out about the baby, you got to figure some some baby paraphernalia has to be out and about. Listen, maybe she Mm. has a nanny that comes to the room every morning, acts like this baby is hers. Okay. And then just (laughs) got the baby in a stroller (laughs) acting like it's her baby, takes the baby out and about. And this is during the time the mom came to visit. I do worry that the baby is under wraps and I'll get back to that at the end of the episode because there's something else that happens at the end of the episode that I had me scratching my head too. I agree with you. Her demeanor was extremely relaxed for someone who is trying to hide a baby that is on the premises. And especially because she knows her parents could literally walk into that house at any time. They own the hotel. Sure. 
her mom, of course, rubs some salt in the wound. Oh, yeah, you're very independent. Like you mentioned before, like you moved out of my house and into my hotel. Yes, yes. I mean, I'm on her side for that one. <laughs> I agree. I agree. You really showed me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Where I'm not really on her side is where she's talking about, hey, this is so hard on me. This is so hard on your dad. Fia basically says, oh, please get, you know, step off of your crucifix. Yes. <laughs> Which gets her a slap. And we cut directly from that. We segue right into her next grief counseling session. And this mm -hmm. is chilling as well, because now Gina yes. says, I want to apologize to all of you. I've been so wrong with how I address this. And they're like, oh, good. It's so good to hear this. And she goes, you guys want me to pass through the 12 stages, the 12 stages of grief? Five. <laughs> You're making it into a 12 is it five? program. <laughs> I'm confusing the two. You, you want to get me past anger. And she's like, anger is my comfort zone. It's where I flourish. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she literally <laughs> says, anger is where I flourish. I'm like, wow. <laughs> That's pretty much all we need to know about Gina. And then, of course, at the very end of the episode, Michael does agree to meet with Sophia. This is where I had questions about that baby. She better have like scoped them out through the window and just ran down to grab them and went back upstairs because was she just hanging out in the lobby with the baby up in the room like for <laughs> while he randomly waiting for her, like she grabbing some drinks or something while he's uh, <laughs> waiting for him to show up. So he again, points baby. to the idea that maybe there is a caretaker somewhere pretending yes. this is her own baby. Yes. Uh, this is a, something that I have just conjured up during this podcasting yes, session. There's that, no evidence. <laughs> yeah. That she's got somebody pretending this is her baby right. so that she can then hide the baby. But <laughs> it's a very elaborate plan. Yes. <laughs> and once again, maybe unintentionally comic to me. Anyway, my, my style of comedy, when Michael sees the baby, <laughs> the expression on his face He's not happy about the baby. He just, I, I don't know. It's like he's, he found something unsightly in the refrigerator or something. <laughs> I didn't pick up on that. I will say, uh, and this is not anything that we saw, but because I had been thinking so much during the episode of how hard it would be to resume this life without your wife and your son, this will be the thing that keeps him going is knowing that he has this grandson. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen again in this episode how he is suicidal and maybe even thinking in that moment earlier on that he's still thinking about suicide because you're thinking, well, isn't Charlie going to take the fall for this? But honestly, if he disappears, are they really going to go after Charlie for right. to get vengeance right. on a dead man? It doesn't make any sense. Right. So I think it's very, very important to him that the thing that's going to keep him going is this baby and protecting him from potentially a life of being what a don a, a mob don like is that really what he wants to leave that baby in that circumstance right give him a reason to fight so in that way the story is very nicely constructed i think yeah i think so so far except for the baby <laughs> if that's a, a baby under wraps <laughs> a very possible secret baby <laughs> yes the idea that this baby's been under wraps for a whole year is very Questionable. Well, it's also not clear to me how newborn this baby is supposed to be, right? Because of that thing that always happens in movies and TV shows of full-size non-newborns playing newborns. So maybe well, the baby is not that old. So Elizabeth says, I haven't heard from you in about a year to Michael. For some reason, I was assuming it's been about a year since the son died. I think there was an anniversary or something mentioned at some point. So I think this is approximately a year after the death, give or take, which would mean this baby is only a few months old, you know, like he's like three right. months, five, five months, right. somewhere around there. Anyway, my final opinion was I, I really like this. Like I mentioned, uh, kind of previewed earlier, I thought this is better than most of these episodes have been. It's a different show. 
than it's been before, but not a show I dislike. And uh, I, agree. I like, I think that what we're seeing is all these different people dealing with losses, whether it's Eugene dealing with the loss of his family, whether it's Gina dealing with the loss of her son, whether it's the dad pining for this relationship with Fia, all of these people are dealing with loss in very, very different ways. And the show is not putting its thumb on the scale saying, this person is doing it right. This person is doing it wrong. You know, Elizabeth yes. has her own way of doing it. Everyone's just dealing with it as best they can. And I thought that was really compassionate. And like I said, it gives me more of a connection to all these characters, which season one, that wasn't the focus of season one, let's say. Right. Totally agree. And I think some people may not like this, right? That the first season was like a thrill If machine. you're expecting to be on the edge of your seat every episode, this is not delivering on that. Exactly. Did you have, now maybe during the course of this conversation, are you piecing together Olivia's plan at all? I personally do not know what that plan might be. I also don't know if Mo has a plan buying that bar across the street. If there is scheming going on, I don't know what it is yet. Yeah, I haven't thought about it all that hard because I like to be along for the ride. But as of right now, no, it is completely opaque to me what Olivia could possibly be trying to put into place here. Yeah, and this is a 10-episode season. So, you know, we have eight more episodes to go. So they're taking their time, but that's fine. I don't, I'd rather have a very interesting story well told than to just have random cliffhangers per episode. So Agree. And next week we have... Jimmy and Gina are butting heads about her hot-headedness. He actually has a physical altercation with her. Charlie asks Michael if he said anything to implicate Charlie. So just one episode ago, this is a current episode, he's like, ah, I know if you were there, my brother, you didn't say anything. But now, apparently, I don't know if it's Olivia's doing, somebody has made Charlie suspicious of what Michael might have talked about. Mm-hmm. Could also be the detective, by the way, who's worked to sabotage Michael, who might have gone and talked to Charlie. Because she's heard that confession. Obviously, she was there. True. Big Mo needs to make an explicit threat to the club owner. So I thought the sale was finalized. I guess not. And Carlo and Michael confront each other on the street. Apparently it is because he's been hanging out with Fia, probably because of the baby. Mm. So the family is not, the Baxters are not too happy about Michael hanging around. And also we see at the very end of that coming attractions that Olivia reminds Michael that his participation in her plot is not optional. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a given, but I guess sometimes yes. you have to say it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. So let's get into my rewatch of Breaking Bad season two. So a couple of things that are interesting here is I forgot that, you know, we see a lot of this in the Better Call Saul show that there is this puzzle that's being unraveled, whether it's the season level, uh, these plots that are unraveling, or whether it is even a mystery within a certain episode. That really wasn't the pattern in season one of Breaking Bad, but it, it really becomes overtly the pattern in season two. So for example, if you remember, Sona, the very first episode, we see that pink teddy bear floating in the pool. Yes. And it's like burned and one of its eyeballs gets like sucked into the, uh, the filter. And so it's like this mystery that hangs over the season. Like what does that teddy bear mm -hmm. have to do with mm -hmm. anything that's happened in the show? And, uh, in season two, I mean, in episode two of this season, we have Jesse's lowrider like jumping on its hydraulics and we hear it and we see, we hear the hydraulic repetition. We don't know what it is at first. Then we see shattered glass bouncing like on the, on the dashboard. And then we finally see that this is like the aftermath of a shooting and the, the car is, his car is uh, jumping on its hydraulics. And, uh, but of course we don't, that's not revealed until the very last moments of that second episode. So it becomes a motif here to have this kind of puzzle within an episode or even within the season, uh, which wasn't really apparent in the earlier 
episodes. Episode one, which is called 737, by the way, very interesting. I think when I first saw the show that I felt like the 737 reveal at the end of season two, and I guess I'll, I'll preserve it for now, was related to, I mean, I, I thought that the reveal of that was something they happened upon as if they hadn't planned it ahead of time. Like they kind of wrote the season. They're like, well, what is it going to be? It's just an arbitrary mystery that we have to like resolve at the end. And I thought it was kind of weird the way they resolved that story. But anyway, whether I like it or not, I didn't think it was uh, planned out this far in advance. And the fact that the episode is called 737, obviously, <laughs> now that I've rewatched it, is like, well, yes, they were planning this from the very, very beginning. Mm -hmm. But there's another reference to 737, by the way, in this same episode that Walt decides, and here's my first question for you. He decides, this, by the way, picks up immediately after the events of season one. They've just had the deal in the junkyard. Uh, no, no Doze gets beaten at that moment, we think, not to death, but apparently it is to death. And... Um, they're in the car afterwards and Jesse's totally freaked out, but Walt is just calculating how many more deals do I need to get to his nest egg? And he does his little calculation in his mind and he comes up with $737,000 is what he needs to retire. Now, Sona, this is 10 years ago and they do live in New Mexico. Hmm. $737,000 enough for them to live. I mean, I think that's probably is right. You got to, you got to pay the mortgage. He's got 10 years of mortgage left. He says on the house, mm -hmm. pay the mortgage. Got to put a nest egg aside for the kids to go to school. That's probably enough money, right? Not well, in New York I City. I guess he's <laughs> not in New York City. But... Never enough money in New York City, <laughs> but I guess he's factoring in as well Social Security and his 401k. He's a teacher, they get great benefits. True. So I'm assuming he's uh, not having seen this recently. I'm assuming he also has some supplement to that that's coming because no, that does not sound like enough to me. Well, he's planning to die as well, right? So it's really not about well, supporting himself. It's about supporting the family, right? Yes, that's true. But that's probably enough money. I mean, once again, especially if you live in New Mexico and your house is almost paid off, you're probably okay with seven hundred thirty. If he, when does he think he's going to die? How soon? Oh, he's thinking he's going to die within the year. So I guess you figure... I mean, this is like doing a life insurance calculation for your spouse, <laughs> right, right? Exactly. Where right. you're kind of like, well, the kid's going to have to go to college. Uh, <laughs> I guess, you know, if you had $737,000, if you invested half of that really well, right. and then use the other half to pay off all the outstanding bills and education and whatever, it could work. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the stock market has, <laughs> we're not going to go with this calculation, but the stock market makes about 10% a year mm. on average. So if you sock that away, you can make 30, 40 grand there, which is probably enough money for you to live off of. And then, like you said, the rest of the money is to pay off debts and put the kids through school. And of course, mm -hmm. they have time before that happens. So it will still increase in value by the time they have to go and use that money. So I think it makes sense, more or less. And like you mentioned, she might inherit some pension. He, she gets benefits from his Social Security at some point in the future. I mean... It doesn't seem like a conservative calculation to me, but I think you could make it work, I suppose. Yeah. Speaking as someone who carries significantly more insurance than that. so <laughs> <laughs> You also live in Manhattan, though. That's another uh, Very true. Very, very true. So after No Dose dies, they, they get very paranoid that Jesse specifically gets very paranoid that Tuco is going to come after him because they've witnessed this murder. And then when Walt gets a text from Hank showing that Gonzo has also turned up dead in that same junkyard. They become pretty convinced that Tuco's coming for them. Jesse wants to get a gun. 
Walt basically says, let's do the math. How many times would you shoot this guy? What if there's someone else there? How many, you know, etc. and so forth. And basically tells him the way to do this is not with a gun. We're going to try to poison him with ricin. Mm-hmm. And they try to put some ricin into a baggie with their blue meth. And wow, this ricin thing really is a theme throughout, huh? Yes. <laughs> Surprisingly, right? Well, I, yeah, mean, I guess again, not, we'll right? It's try and avoid spoilers, but it, yeah. <laughs> Ricin becomes make, important later. <laughs> exactly. You can make it out of beans, apparently. I didn't know that, but that's how, how, how they make right, it. Right, right. I guess it's a convenient thing. No, not doesn't leave much of a footprint. And then what else happens there? And then, so now Walt's paranoid too, even though it turns out, they find out that this guy was not killed. He was crushed by the cars because he was trying to get No Doze's body out of there to give him a proper burial and ended up getting crushed by one of the other cars. Hmm. So... That night, Walt is so freaked out about this whole situation. At one point, he stays up all night long trying to, or or, uh, paranoid that there's uh, someone scoping out the house, which there is, but we'll find out who that is later, not Tuco. He gets a call just as he's about to confess everything to Skylar, who's giving him the cold shoulder. She knows that something's going on. And right after almost spilling the beans, he notices that Jesse's car is out front. When he goes over to say, like, I told you not to come by, by my house, it turns out Tuco's in the back seat and says, get in the car. At gunpoint, and he disappears. Yikes. Because, yeah. So that's the end of episode one. Episode two, we see that preview, like I mentioned, that the of the car jackhammering up and down on its hydraulics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is when we meet, oh, what's his name? Hector. This is when we meet Hector Salamanca. Oh, wow. <laughs> Tuco takes them out to this, <laughs> you know, disgusting Salamanca comp- compound out of the desert, which we will see many more times in Breaking Bad, yes. and of course, in Better Call Saul as well. It turns out that Hank has raided Tuco's headquarters. That's the reason that Tuco was running out. He wanted to know who had ratted him out. He's wondering if uh, Walt and Jesse were involved in some way. But actually what he wants is to go cook this meth down in Mexico, and he's abducting Walt and Jesse to do the cooking. Tuco's on the run. Of course, it turns out it's because they found these bodies and they think that Tuco's the one who killed them. They're right, half, they're half right, at least. And Marie has, uh, you know, mentions to Skylar that Walt must have a second cell phone because they looked for any incoming calls based on Skylar's description of what happened before he disappeared. So now she's even more suspicious of him. And of course, that's going to create even more tension with them throughout the rest of the season. Walt, I mean, uh, Skylar mentions Jesse because of the supposed pot dealing. And he goes and talks to Jesse's mom, who gives him the information on his low jack. And that's when Hank rolls up at Tuco's compound where the car is. Meanwhile, in this whole entire time, they've been trying to kill, get this, the ricin into this burrito that Tuco made. They think that this is actually <laughs> one, of the, one of the few comedic moments in this entire mm-hmm. season, which gets grimmer and grimmer as it goes along, is this whole, they're plotting to kill Tuco in front of Hector, thinking that he's like a vegetable. <laughs> And then all of a sudden, the little ding, ding, ding. <laughs> he throws the, t- the burrito on the ground. Tuco gets very mad about this. Eventually, he, Walt and Jesse push back on going to Mexico. They get into a fight outside. They get their hands on Hector's gun. They shoot him in the gut, but he survives. And that is exactly when Hank shows up. There's a big shootout. Tuco dies. So I forgot how quickly Tuco is only in such only only like two episodes of the show at this moment, even though he came back for Better Call Saul. Hector survives, of course, and Jesse and Walt start walking <laughs> back home, a long walk home. Mm-hmm. 
And that's the end of episode two. This is now the next uh, episode. We see that Walt has to come up with an explanation to what happened to him. Where did he go? Jesse ends up jumping onto the back of a truck with some day laborers. Walt gets completely naked and walks into a 7-Eleven. <laughs> and he says that he got into a fugue state, possibly because of his chemotherapy. That's right. I forgot all about this. And he's like, this is how I get out of this. And now they're like, well, we don't want this to happen again. We're going to keep you here under observation, like indefinitely. Mm -hmm. So he's like, great. Now he's stuck in this hospital. Meanwhile, Jesse is, let me see while Jesse. Oh yeah. So Jesse goes back to his house to clean up any of the evidence of the house, any meth paraphernalia. He gets Badger's cousin to let him to tow the RV and store it for him at his tow lot. Jesse ends up getting arrested, I forget why, and he gets interrogated by Hank. Hank thinks he's working with Tuco. Oh, and they want to have Hector identify him. And Jesse freaks out here, but Hector does not rat him out. Mm -hmm. Said he soils himself disgustingly in front of them. (laughs) I guess he does not talk to cops, no matter what. Even if these are the person who killed, who got your your, uh, nephew murdered, (laughs) you still don't rat them out. You never talk to the cops. Walt eventually gets himself released from prison, I'm prison, from the hospital by confessing to his psychiatrist that he made this whole thing up because he just didn't want to deal with it. And it's interesting how he lies and tells the truth at the same time. He obviously is lying about the specifics of this, but he his theory, his uh, explanation that he just didn't want to deal with everybody babysitting him and treating him like a child and worrying about his chemotherapy. And he just wanted to be left alone, which is mm-hmm. probably all true. It's probably part of the reason he wants to cook the meth in the desert by himself or with Jesse anyway, is that he just wants to be feel like he's not a dying man. Mm-hmm. So th- some truth to this, even as he obviously is covering up his own tracks. Oh, and then Skylar questions him about the second cell phone. And he makes up some, oh, I think it was my alarm on my cell phone. It sounds like a ringer, blah, blah. And she just knows that he's lying. And this starts mm-hmm. to build this rift between the two of them. Yes. Next episode, Jesse's broke. His parents have taken, reclaimed the house. He has no cash on him because Tuco took his cash. Walt doesn't want to have anything to hear, listen to him. He says, oh, you spent all that money on your, on drugs when actually the, anything he had left on cash, he had actually spent to have the car towed. And basically he has, this episode is really tense and really builds a lot of sympathy for Jesse. You realize just how he never gets a break. No one ever trusts what he, that he's trying to do the right thing. Walt just continuously thinks that he is just screwing up. And of course, Mm -hmm. meanwhile, Walt is really angry at himself for letting things get out of hand simultaneously. And he's taking it all out of Jesse because who else can he take it out of? Like no one else even knows what's going on. (laughs) He has to pretend to be this perfect person otherwise. Mm Mm-hmm. He does take things his own initiative. He breaks into Clovis's repair yard. It's the only place he can stay. So he actually sleeps inside the RV. Clovis, who's the guy who owns the repair yard, he basically says, look, I'll give you even more money if you just let me. I just need to like cook another batch. I'll get some money and then I can pay you back. Clovis says, hey, I'm going to sell everything they have inside the RV. And Jesse just drives off (laughs) and steals the RV back, basically. I mean, honestly, Clovis can't really say anything because this is all illegal, what he's done as well, so... Jesse shows up one more time at Walt's house. Skylar is disappearing every single day, just doesn't tell her where he's going, like a little revenge here. Turns out she's smoking when she's alone. This is her revenge on, on Walt. Still very pregnant, of course. She's not had the baby yet. And she, he keeps telling Walt, I need half of that money. 
He says, you already took half the money that was our deal and now you blew it. And he's blaming him for all these things. Jesse literally <laughs> nearly strangles him to death. He's so at the end of his rope. <laughs> Walt finally snaps to it, splits the money in half, which is in a diaper box, by the way, with the gun. And he left it there. And luckily no one looked in that diaper box the entire time that he disappeared. And then he uses that money to pay back Clovis, even for the repairs, the damage to the fence when he drove away. He asks him, will you house the RV? Can I leave it here? And basically when he's finally not in this cornered rat mode, he makes some good decisions and set things up for the rest of the season. But meanwhile, Walt's hospital visit, some of the things were not covered. Skyler's on the phone every single day trying to push back on some of these costs. But he is now, once again, this is a pattern in the show, at least early on, that he has zeroed out everything he made. He had to give, mm -hmm. he lost half of it. Mm -hmm. And now he had to split half of it again. And now with the remaining of all these costs and the rest of his chemo that's coming out of his own pocket, he has zeroed out. So theoretically, if he had just accepted the money from, from his ex-girlfriend and her husband mm -hmm. for the gray matter, mm -hmm. he would have been the same situation he is in now. I mean, he literally has done all this, taken all these risks, done all these things purely because of his own ego, because he ends up with nothing. Again, he has no nest egg. He's got nothing. <laughs> and mm -hmm, he's back mm -hmm. to square one yet again. We're running out of time, so I don't think I'm going to be able to break down the rest of the episodes, but I will. I mean, the rest of the episodes in this first half of the season, but just a couple more things that I wanted to bring up here. I did find it funny. We see that Hank and his partner find video footage of the, the uh, stealing of uh, Heisenberg, not knowing that that's um, Hank, of course. Mm-hmm stealing the um the methylamine and they're making fun of him going like wow look at them they they know how to use thermite to blow that lock very impressive <laughs> and then they're <laughs> carrying the barrel out and they're like roll it it's a barrel <laughs> so they go they go from very impressed at these criminals to mm -hmm. not impressed at all and they call out the fact that wow okay they're very book smart but definitely not criminals so it's so funny that like it seems hank so many times and i had forgotten this until i rewatched he's so many times is so close to catching walt and uh, I guess when I was watching the show, I just assumed that, of course, he's not going to get caught this early on. So I just kind of neglected all of that. But it is mm -hmm. funny how how close he is to profiling this person properly. Even the picture of him with the hat on. And then there's a scene right after Hank has this picture of Heisenberg where he shows up at the house and he forgot to take the hat, hat off. And uh, Skylar goes, hey, new hat. So it's just like, once again, it's like within minutes if like <laughs> Hank had rolled in, he right. would have looked exactly like the picture that he, was, mm -hmm. he had on his desk five minutes before. So it's it's just it's just interesting how how he's threading a needle here and just getting lucky over and over again. And I think that's one of the themes of the show. How much time? Three minutes. Okay. So our coverage of the of Your Honor went a little longer than I expected. So I think that's as far as I'm going to get. I think I only got into four episodes of this recap. I actually wanted to get all the way up to the arrival of. Saul, but maybe we'll uh, use that for next week because other things happen here at season two. This is also when Jesse's girlfriend, what's, what was her name again? Gosh, I know the Jane, actress Jane. is, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is also when, you know, soon they're out, or Jane shows up in this first half of the season. And of course things don't go well for her, spoiler alert, for <laughs> <a> show. <laughs> but it is, uh, which is, I think, really a turning point in the Waltz character as well. Although I think that's another revelation I made pretty in rewatching that he's a pretty terrible person. In my memory, he became like really morally reprehensible with the Jane situation, which I won't go into detail. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
But in retrospect, I mean, the way he's gaslighting Skyler, the way he is like showing no quarter to Jesse, who obviously is in similar circumstances as him, the way he keeps saying that, I don't need you. I'm doing everything here. And he has kind of a point. He's the one who has to do the deals. He's been doing all this, but he's the one who like dragged Jesse into the circumstance and is pushing things uh, and getting Jesse into trouble multiple times here as well. And it gets pretty ugly here, even in this uh, season of the show. All that to say that he is a pretty morally reprehensible character, even at this moment. I think that it was always there rather than something that he came upon later on. Right. I think that's fair. Yeah, we'll pick that up next time when we have a little spare time in the show. Although I don't think we'll be doing a recap, any more recap episodes yet of Breaking Bad. Next week, we'll probably be talking about Accused, which I want to get your Mm -hmm. read on, which is premiering tomorrow. So we have a whole, you have a week to catch up on it. And also uh, Poker Face. Poker Face is premiering next week. And I definitely want to review that. Sony may not have time to watch it, but I'll be Mm -hmm. reviewing it. And maybe you can catch up on a couple episodes of it the following week and we can have a conversation about that as well. Sounds good. All right. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you. (laughs) Talk to you soon. Okay. Take care.